Infirmary Media. People engage in stuff for jeweling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Poop culture, popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Combat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Broadcasting from the Bio Bidet Studios, where water does it better. It's the Adult Audio Retro Game Show, where the 80s and 90s do battle. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. This week, we dive deep into the wild and exciting and often outrageous world of canon films. I am Mark James, and with us for this outlandish adventure into cinema is the Globus to my golem, Man Crush. Also joining us this week is Mike Ranger from, you guessed it, the Video Rangers podcast, and Brandon from the Red on You podcast. Gentlemen, villains, and heroes, welcome to the show. What is new this week? Why do I have to be fucking Globus? <laughs> I'm, I'm Menachem, and you're Yoram. Why am I? I'm not the money guy, though. I, well, I'm not the fucking money guy either. Oh, we need the we need a money guy. That's what we yeah. need. <laughs> that ship has sailed, I guess. Uh, yeah. All right, fine. I'll, for this one, you know what? I will be Globus because I'm still alive. Oh, <laughs> well, all right. You got <laughs> it. Dead ass motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really matter, guys. You both look great in blue sweatsuits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dude. Before we get into it, let's. Uh, we brought these two on here. Brandon, of course, their show, uh, Red on You, just came on the PCU just a couple weeks back, and Basement Condition. He actually does both shows, but they cover movies a little bit newer, uh, 90s, 2000s. You probably go all over the place, right? Yeah, we go all over the place. Uh, Mike is a little bit more retro, so they do a little bit more throwback stuff, a little bit more off the wall. You do a little bit more mainstream, so it's two different things but you're perfect fits to do this whole show about this company that we grew up on that we loved and of course if you haven't guessed it from the people that are uh, on here is it's about the canon group or uh, golan and globus we grew up on these films so this is i'm really excited about this episode yeah this is a topic i've been wanting to tackle on this show for a very long time I'm glad that we're finally able to do it, and I think we got the right guys here to do it with tonight. That's kind of weird. We don't have the right guys to do it with. We just got the right guys to record with. Uh, All right, whatever. That does sound like a canon thing, though. Uh, <laughs> if you're not familiar with uh, with canon, we're going to go over these in a showdown style. We're going to pick out some of our favorites going through it, but just briefly, looking at canon, it was, what would you say, Action as a whole, but explosions, tits, campy, ass, campy, clean clothes, lots of clean clothes, <laughs> lots of pressed, clean pressed. clothes that they they had a return at the end of the day. Freshly I'm painted sure. walls and sets. Everything was in pristine condition. It's it's amazing. And it, we got to start a little bit from the beginning, though, give a little bit of uh, a backdrop on Canon for those that don't know. So these guys were the Israeli film scene, not just like guys from the Israeli film scene. These two were the top of the Israeli film scene and left, came over to the United States. They bought Canon, which was a company that was going bankrupt. It was around the late seventies, yeah. 1979 or so. And they bought it for 20 cents on the share. So they got it for a steal. I think they paid like half a million bucks 
out of the gate, I don't want, I don't want to give any of the movies just yet. Cause I know we'll hit on them, but going through this, I never realized there were so many Oscar nominations for Canon. Yeah. Amazing. And I know nobody will pick those movies. Most likely now nah, we'll wait. We'll see if anybody picks those. Uh, that's what always attracted me to Canon and to Golan and Globus was they had such a reckless abandoned style to filmmaking. Much like what we do on this show sometimes, you know, let's just throw an idea out. If it sticks, it sticks, you know, crazy or not. It was, you know, my favorite thing, maybe I'm just a simple person, but the movies were simple. Yes. They Easy were, to follow. You had, you had a good guy, you had a bad guy. Yep. Then you throw in the action, explosion, boobs, more explosions, more action, ninjas, more ninjas. More boobs. More boobs. More boobs. And you got you got yourself a cannon flick with a yeah. nice, easy story or a con- just a crazy story that made no sense. But they were fun. They're fun movies. They're always on television. They're popcorn flicks. One of the things that I've always loved about canon and, and what's so different from what's going on right now, right now your movies come to you two ways. They're either... Like everybody loves it or everybody hates it. There's nothing in the middle, yeah. and that's what Canon was. Canon was it was your buffer Sunday afternoon WPIX one o'clock. Cobra was coming on, you know, something <laughs> like that. And almost, I, I I can't think of one person that I know that's in their 30s right now or early 40s that can't do a line from any fucking Canon movie that you're throwing out throw out there. That's so amazing. And what I love, and we talked about it a little bit earlier with Globus, he was the money guy. And this guy would raise money, and he couldn't even raise money fast enough. I just lost my train of thought. Globus would and, raise the money, okay. and then Menachem Golan yeah, Glo- would spend yeah, it. Yeah, Menachem Golan. He would spend it faster than he can get it. Right. And they were notoriously cheap. Uh, one of the lines that they threw out in the documentary, which I think is fantastic, is they said 90% of the budget that he raised went into the film. So there was no fluff. Like they weren't paying for, you know, food on the set or anything like that. It was the movie. That's what you got. And then we're talking about the eighties. So they would go and film, say they wanted to film two weeks in New York. Well, two weeks in New York cost $2 million. So say they were shooting a movie that was taking place in New York, like maybe like a later death wish when he moves over, I think it was death wish three. So now they have to shoot in New York, right? Well, instead of shooting in New York, they would shoot in Toronto for right. six weeks. What would cost $2 million and only two weeks in New York. And then they would just make believe Toronto is New York City. And everybody but, does that today. Everything's yeah. shot in Canada now because it's so much cheaper. Isn't that correct, Brandon? It is very true. <laughs> I'm right outside of Toronto. Trailblazers. Yeah. yeah like, isn't uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, isn't that in Vancouver? I think I it believe was. it was. Yeah. yeah, it's only like a few minutes actually filmed in New York. Probably why the movie's not that good. <laughs> I love it when he knocks the guy's head off and it goes into the dumpster. Yes, oh, that's my favorite scene. Oh, that's a great scene, man. Well, these guys, instead of uh, like how they sell movies today, these guys would go to Cannes. They would just go straight to the film festival and they would just announce movies. They have no plan for them. It was just... Hey, we're going to have this movie and they'd show like, you know, the cover just kind of like how it was when we rented movies because all yeah. those were just based off of cover art. They would do the same shit and they would go to Cannes and they'd be like, oh, we have Spider-Man or we have whatever. And 
then they would go up to their room and these people with money would just go up there and they'd sell them the movies before right. they were ever made. They and by, by sell them the movie, it's not like they're actually physically handing them a movie. No, no, no. They're selling the concept or the idea. They're just pitching them. The, that's yep. how great of a salesperson these two cousins were as a team. They could sell anything. And they were just coming up with crazy ideas and be like, all right, well, we got a, this we got this movie and this person's going to be in it. And they just pitch a crazy idea. There's no script. There's nothing. Nope. There's a poster and an idea. That's all you get. And give me 20 million bucks. And they would do it time and time again. They shot themselves in the foot doing that. They were supposed to get Dustin Hoffman in 1986 yeah. to this big contract. Well, they signed him in January of 86. Two months later, Dustin Hoffman backed out of the contract because they put an ad for this movie. I think it was uh, La Bravada or something like that that they were going to. I don't remember. I don't remember what it was supposed to be. I think that was the name. And they already made up the concept art and they were showing it in a trade journal. And Dustin Hoffman found out they did this. And so they reneged on the contract and he pulled himself out. But they worked with some big actors along the way. They paid uh, Sly Stallone twelve million bucks yeah. <laughs> to do over the top, which was on um, nobody was getting twelve million bucks. No, the that. going rate on Sly Stallone was six million. And when he called, you know, the agent said, "Well, Sly Stallone gets six million dollars a picture. Now you can't pay him six million dollars." He's like, "I don't want to pay him six million. I want to pay him 12. And he did. He did. He was worth every penny. Amazing flicks. All right, and so everybody knows the documentary we keep talking about is Electric Boogaloo with the weird untold story of Canon Films. You can find it on Netflix, uh, directed by Mark Hartley. little plug for him there. American Netflix. It's not on Canadian Netflix. Yeah, oh, I, wow. I tried to get uh, Brandon to watch it. I did watch the other one that came out, which is called Go-Go Boys. Right. And Go-Go Boys is actually put out by an uh, Israeli company, and they were fighting to get one out first. Just like they did with, you know, Breakin' and Beat Street and freaking yeah. Lombada and the Forbidden Dance. You know, they were trying to just beat the other one out. Yeah. I'm not sure which one won, but I would say Electric Boogaloo, the documentary, was better than the Go-Go Boys one. Yeah, the Go-Go Boys one beat them by three months to the really? release. Yeah, it beat Electric Boogaloo to release by three months because what had happened was when the director was getting ready to make this movie, he contacted Golem and Globus to do interviews for this, and they declined, and it immediately went into production in their own documentary and beat them, yep. beat him to it by three months. And it's pretty sad because uh, Golan is in like a wheelchair in a lot of the clips in, uh, in the Go-Go Boys. And then, of course, these came out in 2014, and he died. He died right in after. 2014. Yeah. yeah. So at least they got him in that before he kicked the bucket. Right. The one that they didn't do on themselves, the Electric Boogaloo documentary, is much better, I thought. Oh, yeah. It's it's way better. It's way more better. fun to watch. It is. It, it, one of the cool things in the other documentary that they show a little bit more of is uh, how they kind of held companies hostage. So they would yeah. contact these companies in like Thailand or whatever, and they would go to sell them a movie. And they'd be like, oh, okay, you want a Charles Bronson movie? Great. Well, you have to take Othello. And they'd be like, well, we don't want fucking, we don't want Othello. And they'd be like, well, if you want Charlie Bronson, you're going to take Othello and you're going to play that movie first. And then we'll give you Death Wish 4 or whatever the fuck was out then. Right. And these country, these companies in these other countries wanted those movies so badly that they would take it. So they were getting play for even the movies that nobody liked. Right. So 
pretty cool how uh, he did business until the end. <laughs> yeah, well, until the end. But you, you see, still see a lot of those same business practices that they started that were so renegade back then. Are A lot of them are common practice today in Hollywood. Oh, sure. Like uh, we had David Michael Ladd on back in 2016. David Michael Ladd is the CEO of uh, Silent Pictures. Asylum Films or wherever they go by. They're the ones that did, like, uh, they do Zombie Z Nation, Sharknado, and all those movies. And when he came on, they're a company that's, uh, they're a production company that's never lost a penny once. Right. And that's rare. And basically what he told us is, well, it's easy. We sell the movie first. Yep. Whatever they're going to pay us, we use that money to create the film. And that is the same thing that Golan and Globus did yep. during this period. Bloomhouse does the same thing. Hey, it's smart. It you, is. You know, you're not losing money. But then as time went on, they got that $350 million loan in like 85 or 86. Yeah. And that's when they started just doing crazy shit with their money. And I'm sure it'll come up as we go through this list. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's get this started. How are we deciding the order tonight? Let's go with Mike first. Okay. I will follow it up with Brandon. And then I'll go third. You can go fourth. One one of my favorite uh, canon films is a movie that's a that's a pretty much a remake of a film they had done when they were still uh, back in Israel. That, that's where they're from, right? Israel. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Called Lemon Popsicle. I only mentioned it like six times before. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, what movie was a lot it? of weed in college. Uh, <laughs> so the movie was called Lem- Lemon Popsicle, and when they came to America, they basically remade the film almost shot for shot as the last american virgin what i like about it is how it's it starts off with this tone like it's gonna be like your traditional sex comedy but as you go through the movie it's so not an american style of filmmaking there's not too many american films that are made especially targeted at the teen audience that end on such a down note yeah. I mean, especially then, <laughs> especially in yeah. the early 80s, late 70s, it was all, you know, slapstick comedy. Right. I mean, Empire can get ri- can get by by ending on a down note, but not a, a teen comedy, you know? Those not usually... like a feel good movie. Right. Like, could you imagine if Karate Kid ended with like Daniel getting like pummeled and he shits his pants in front of the entire fucking... <laughs> You know, tournament? Yeah, it actually would have made it. It actually would have made it the best movie ever. That's what it's missing. Now that you bring it up, fuck. That's all I want to see now. Maybe the new one. Maybe in the new one. That's right. Coming to YouTube Red. Maybe we'll finally get to see that. It looks like it. He shits himself. He's old. (laughs) Shit happens. But yeah, I agree with you. There's so many scenes in there that are weird. And like one scene they mentioned in the documentary is where uh, she's in the hospital after getting the abortion and he brings her a Christmas tree, a Christmas tree and a bag of oranges. Yeah. Like what the, it's kind of funny because it's so off the wall, but I don't know if, is that like an Israeli thing? Yeah. It's a custom, I guess. I have no idea. They just were like, fuck it. Christmas trees and oranges. We're in California. (laughs) They bought it on the side of the road. Yeah. Like. Some Mexican dude. I like the imagery of when she goes and she gets the abortion and like it just (laughs) cuts right away to a guy slicing a pizza. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, that's like, that's just damn good filmmaking. Yeah, that's to eat the pizza. That's quality editing right there. Whoever thought of that transition? That that's Academy Award winning stuff right there. I need to see I this film. So. Is that available online? Like, that's the thing I said to Mark before. A lot of these movies are not available on Amazon Prime anymore, and they were. So they I don't know. While, where yeah. do you see that one? Have you um, seen it? That one, I I have a DVD copy that comes with it's a double feature i think losing it is the other movie on there and then i also have a blu-ray of the last american version the problem with the blu-ray is that it comes with nothing on it i mean you get no features and you're paying like 16 17 bucks for that fucking thing oh wow. is canon still releasing these sounds like it. yeah probably <laughs> only they've 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 changed their name well yeah mgm to rifle So Mike Ranger just selected his favorite all-time canon movie, Last American Virgin. So we figured, why not speak to somebody from the film? Oh, I love that. We got Diane Franklin. Yes, you did. You got Karen. My gosh, I love that film. We, I was just talking to someone about this when I first got the script. Uh, you know, I was... It, the main thing I remember seeing when I got that script was... There are like two different tones in this movie, you know, there's that, you know, sex teen comedy, like almost soft right, porn yep. kind of thing going on. And then there's this like heavy duty, serious story. Yeah. So my take, which was interesting. Now I look at the whole thing was, first of all, this movie is sex education for guys. It, yeah, I could see that's that. It. So if you if you're a guy and you haven't seen it, go see it because <laughs> even now, what is it? 36 years later, even now, hey, if it played in the theaters now. People would still be stunned. They would be stunned if they saw that movie. That even lends to the line of the movie, if you look at the posters, where it says, see it or be it. So it's a, it's a sex education movie. If you don't see it, yeah, you're going to be that last American version. Yeah. Right. Well, see, I, yeah. and I think we yeah. mentioned this on, on the episode just a second ago when, we, when Mike picked the last American version. I hadn't seen the movie. But see, we're recording this a day after, so I finally got a copy of it, and I watched uh-huh. it, and of course, I absolutely loved it. And oh, I was gonna say you hate me. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you were so in a Monique mood. You like Monique, and now it's like, oh my god, no, forget no, it. I, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love the movie, and you know, I'm I'm 40 years old now. Mm-hmm. See, I never saw it, so I didn't. You can appreciate. I didn't, I didn't learn all those things. So if I just would have seen it when I was Look a where kid, you are now, man. You would have never got crabs. You know, so many people saw it when they were like 12. Like I was, people have come up to me and go, I saw that when I was 12. And I went, where were your parents? Oh. That was rated R, okay? Um, and uh, I remember I actually had to show my ID to go in to see the movie because they thought I was too young to go in. And I'm like, but I'm the reason why it's R. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Let me just tell you, as a, as a kid growing up, uh-huh. like we actually owned, this is, Prior to VHS, we had the RCA disc. Remember those, those big RCA discs? Yeah. They called them CEDs. Oh, those, they didn't last no. very long, but they were giant. But yeah. okay. they did have a copy of Last American Virgin on RCA disc. And my <gasps> regular rotation as a 10 and 11 year old was Greece, <laughs> Friday the 13th, Airplane, <laughs> and Greatest American Virgin. Probably, you know, so Good. my parents were degenerates. Yeah, they let me watch it. 
Right, of course, right. No, nobody was like, I don't know. People were worn what they would. That was also the time. It's like when people are with phones, they give their kids phones or computers yep. to just leave them and give them peace. That was then. That was like, put the video on, just let them watch, and then we can go do our thing. So um, they did, it didn't change, but uh, the generations, the parents don't change. But um, they were very smart. I mean, they didn't really mean to be, but it was very smart because Boaz Davidson, this is about his life. Everything that happened in that film was based on his life, his true story. But the thing that I found interesting was you would never get a guy in to see a love story. But if you sell it as a teen sex film, guys are going. And what are they going to learn? They're going to learn about love while they're learning about sex, right? So that to me was one of the brilliance of the film is that it brought people in to just learn about sex and love. And it, it brought people in. Yeah, I mean, they still use that formula today over and over and over. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it's not like you guys did bad. The movie took in $6 million in the box office, and that it might not be one of the biggest movies ever. But for those who have seen it, right. you know, it kind of carries that cult following. And it, of course, it would be yeah. amazing to be in a $100 million movie, but it has to be much cooler to be the star of a movie that has such a profound effect on people that grew up during that era and, and to be in a canon film, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, I don't know, you know, uh, Brett Ratner, the director sure. from like Tower Heist yeah. and, and Ratner. So he, he said that that movie affected him so much that he actually almost dated, uh, well, he dated a girl named um, Rebecca Gayhart and she, uh, he almost married her because she looked like me. That's how like insane it was. It was just like, he was so affected by it. And I actually wrote a book, um, my second book, which is also on Amazon, uh, called The Most Excellent Curls of the Last American French Exchange Babe of the 80s. Um, but that uh, book is, I know, I, it's a, it, the title goes on and on. Um, but he wrote my foreword, Because of Virgin, because that my second book really focuses on Last American Virgin. So if you do like Last American Virgin, look up Diane Franklin book and look for the word curls. And that Uh book focuses mostly on Virgin and shows like great photos from the film and like backstories on it. And so um, my first book was about my career in general. But the second book, which just came out last year, um, that book, if you're a Last American Virgin lover, you will love it. You'll go crazy. Yeah. See, I read part of the first book. Cause I just, it was like 24 hours notice that we found out that you were coming on. So I, I, right. I banged out the chapter oh. on last American version. Thank You're you. welcome. That was good. I got some <laughs> yeah. insight into the movie. Yeah. I wish I had gotten the second book now because that would have given us a lot more insight on the film. But I have to ask you, you're talking about the curls. Yeah. You, you were in a Coke commercial. You were in like a toilet paper commercial. You had mm-hmm. like straighter hair. Is that a sweet ass perm you got going on or what? Like what? Ah, uh, no, but thank you for asking. <laughs> now, that's actually what like my second book is mostly um, and, and talking about is my um, I would I was acting starting when I was like 10 years old and I would straighten my hair for all these commercials and TV and everything because it was like time of Farrah Fawcett and, you know, Marsha Brady and all that. So Last American Virgin was the a complete accident that I wound up going to the audition without straightening my hair. It was just curly and they loved it. And what happened was it was the first film that brought curly hair into the 80s. Last American Virgin is actually this time capsule where not only has the 80s subject matter, like, you know, controversial with the cocaine and the nudity and the abortion. Um, and it not only has the clothing, you know, the, the style, the 80s style and the music, but it's the first film that brought curly hair as a lead uh, as, as a girl who was supposed to, I was supposed to be the American dream girl. And I wasn't, it was blonde hair, blue eyes, but that movie kickstarted all the perms. So 
yes, it is my real hair. No, why would I ever do this to myself? No, that's that's so cool, though, because when you think about curly-haired actresses, all you think of is probably you and Shirley Temple. I mean, you do have the Noxzema girl, like you right, mentioned before. Right. but Or like Flashdance, you know, Flashdance and Dirty Dancing. Those all came after, and I wasn't the most popular, but I was the first. Hey, before we get too far off, you mentioned going to the audition, and I, I found that interesting in your book. And we are doing a nod to Ken. So I think this is, it's really worth talking about. So you went to this audition and there was, it was just you and another person in your book. And then they, they auditioned you and it's, it almost seemed like they gave you the part right there and you started the same day. No, I started, well, yeah, kind of. I started the same day with, um, with wardrobe. Like they immediately did a a costume, uh, like a wardrobe fitting. What happened was I, I was, um, I was in New York and I was supposed to take an, a, a chemistry exam um, and um, at, at NYU. And I realized that I had a better and they had this audition for Virgin. And I booked out. I said, I'm not going to the audition. And I went to take my test at NYU. And I realized I had a better chance at getting a lead in a feature film than passing my chemistry exam. <laughs> so we could be talking to Diane Franklin, the chemist right now. Yes, exactly. I could be, you know, have, have you know, created a. A cure for you know diseases, but no, I'm I'm here talking about my films. Um, and I met Menachem and Yerim Golan and Globus. Um, I hadn't even met Boaz. They said he had flown back, and I almost noticed like I they were literally I think on their way downstairs to go to the plane, and I saw them, and then they said we'll fly you to L.A. So when I got to L.A., they had narrowed. I mean, Boaz had said like he had seen thousands of girls. They had been auditioning in California and New York, and finally and and big name stars as well and it was down to me and this other actress who uh i guess was in a soap opera or was going to be in a soap opera and um i think they almost i mean they i think they wanted to have that other girl so much so that they there was an ad that had her picture in it oh wow (laughs) that's canon style yeah right they already created the ad the i think the other girl she had an obligation to the soap opera or she wound up taking it i don't know if she was their first choice maybe i mean she was stunning she's a beautiful girl um but then i wound up they hired me right there and then i went and the minute i got it they went okay so let's do some wardrobe and i went what is happening and i came by myself i was 19 i went by myself to la um so I didn't even have anyone to, you know, like a parent or my manager there or anything. Insane. I just wound up saying, okay. And then we started shooting, I think, uh, like a week later. We just very fast. Seems I, it. I, and, and I didn't realize at the time when we did it that it was a guerrilla film. So they'd be like scouting locations and go, okay, we're going to shoot here now. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, maybe they didn't get a permit. I don't know. So, yeah, that makes sense. That seems to be how a lot of the films were. With Canon yep. is, uh, it was, you know, fly, fly by night by the seat of the pants. Yeah. It was like, okay, now we're out. We're, we're, this is so funny. We were at a high school where the, you play the football games in the box, like where the, like the, maybe the announcer yeah, the would be, box. like at the top of the stairs, right? And they're like, okay, and get on up there and do your scene, right? Which is like the new, you know, the nude scene, the rub scene. And I had to get up there and I'm like, it was just Boaz and, and the cinematographer and I and Steve and we did the scene, but and everyone was down at the bottom. But I thought that they were, you know, it, it was sort of a respectful thing. They're not supposed to be obviously on set. But maybe they were there just to make sure the police don't come because they would be kicked off. Oh, the, the <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you guys are filming like what would seem like a softcore porno up in. The- <laughs> you never know. So kind of a, oh, a very enlightening now as an adult. Like, oh, that's how you make films. Do you like? I was when I was rewatching the movie again last night. This just dawned on me. 
Canon was always kind of in a race to do movies. They, they released Breaking before Beat mm-hmm. Street, and then, of course, they had split by this time, but Lombada and The Forbidden Dance, there was a race for that one. Do you think there was a race between Last American Virgin getting released and Fast Times at Richmond High? Did it ever seem that way? Absolutely. Well, here's what happened. Virgin was made first, and, and then Fast Times was made after, but Fast Times got released first, and that really hurt Virgin a lot because... I mean, in a, in the distribution, because no, those, this was like the first teen films that came out. There were no teen films that had real teenagers in them. Essentially, they always had older kids playing younger characters. <laughs> like so the big thing about the 80s was the ability to have all these young people play close to their age, you know. And, um, or you know, I'm, I was 19, I'm playing like 16 or something. Um, and, or 16, yeah, yeah. probably 16. It very, there, it was a special time. And we all kind of helped each other and you know one film helped beget the other film but i look at uh fast times and i think that's an american ending and then i look at virgin and say that that's like a european ending and so it's almost like the you know fast times represents you know what the american culture was and virgin sort of represents this is life it was so real uh, you know it, you say it's american but like that really is American. That's every guy trying to get with the girl and then getting shit on, you know, it's not like they're going to take her to the prom at the end. That's just what happens in nineties films in this film. You know, Mark gets, (laughs) you know, he he basically gets passed over at the end and, but that's what really happens. So it, it doesn't really end in a down. I have like a weird take on this movie too. And I think a lot of people, they kind of look at you or, you know, in the wrong way. When I think like Mark was thinking he was going to get a little bit more than actually he was going to get, you know, by paying for your abortion right. and, you know, doing all that stuff. You mean not Gary, Mark, Gary, um, Gary, 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 right. Gary. Why and, are you uh, putting you know, me into this thing? I yeah. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Mark, now Mark doesn't want to even be involved in this. And now here we are. He's in Virginia. right? Okay. So <laughs> Mark's like, I'm in Virginia. What I didn't pay I'm- for anybody's abortion. <laughs> Well, it wasn't even his to pay right. for, but it, it like it always seemed to me when I watched the movie that it was kind of his own fault because he kind of got ahead of himself. The only thing I was kind of mad about in the end was the fact that you ended up getting back with Rick after he did all that and, you know, caused yeah. the scene. Yeah. But that's exactly what happens, man. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But, you know, but but see, here's the other thing, too. It, there's a couple of aspects of it. One is that the first thing I have to say is because I played the character, I think the way I played it, the, the, which actually made it kind of harder, is to the ending's harder, is because you don't see it coming. And because I am the girl you want with yeah. Lawrence and, and with, with Gary, you want me with him. And I'm like, the, like a nice kind, I'm a nice girl until the end when you sort of suddenly go, you know what? This can happen to you, buddy, at, from anybody. Right. It could be a nice girl who does this. Or not nice girl, like you can, you know, this is life, right? Like it can happen, and I think that kind of shakes the person up. Like, what? How can this be? You know, if I was a bitch, then you go, oh, okay, well, then that Everyone we don't want to with him anyway. Yep, exactly. And that cold stare you give him at the end when he's that's that steals the whole scene. It's great. Okay, so to me, that look was, and this is I, I gotta say, that look at the end really was. When you are with somebody and you feel bad that you can't be with them, but it's just not meant to be. And you just like my character is like, whoever's nice to me, I'm going to go to. I'm like a feather in the wind. You're nice to me. Okay, I'm nice to you. Okay. Oh, you like me? Then I'll go to you. And I don't have a backbone. 
and I'm not a centered person, adult yet. And I'm like, not like a person who has my knows what I want. I'm like, I'm one of those girls who's just like, if you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. And when Gary walks in, I feel, I genuinely feel bad. It's like, whoever wants me is going to have to fight for me. And I'm just that kind of a girl, you know, that way. My character to me was, because I had to justify all this. When we got the script, we're thinking, oh, we are going to change this ending. <laughs> this is not the way it's going to be. And when, you know, obviously that's when I learned I was the actress and not the writer. We all were like, oh, I guess it's ending like this. And I had to justify that character. Did you feel bad for him going through the movie knowing what was going to happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, that's not how I would have been if I had been in that situation. That is definitely not. <laughs> where I, I wouldn't have gone with the, you know, the, the cool guy. I, I, I like, although, you know, if I honestly, if Gary had more of a sense of humor, that probably would have helped because it was a little, it's a little self-serious. I, I like guys with sense of humor. I felt bad. I mean, I, I, it is interesting doing the film and I and enjoyed working with both, uh, you know, um, Steve Anton and Lawrence Monison. We had the best time and Kimmy Robertson and Joe Rubo. I mean, this was like all of our first film. It was kind of our first big, film together and and so we were all newbies kind of like you know innocent and and we had a blast we, it was just very exciting for all of us and, um oh I know what I was going to say this is another aspect of what I have to bring up the reason why I really love Virgin so much as a teen film is because everybody in that film was treated like an adult like you know how I don't know. Um, Mark and I understand this, right, Mark? Okay, uh, <laughs> we understand being being from Virginia and all, and like I'm like we're both like older. Um, we both understand that you have to uh, when you're a kid, um, nothing's taken care of for you. In the old days, you it's something. If you had a problem, you didn't go to your parents. Right. You dealt with it. You dealt. So in this case of the film, where there's an abortion or they're having sex or they're drinking, you never, you didn't go to your parents. You took care of what you had to by yourself. And one of the things I liked about the film was that it treated the teenagers like adults, but the kids acted like adults to try to fix it or take care of it. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Like the, this film could have been like people in their twenties today. Right. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. It's so, about children. There's a maturity. Trying to act like adults right. and solve problems like adults, but yeah. they're still solving those problems with an adolescent or juvenile angle to them. Mike from Video Rangers couldn't be here, but this they actually did an entire episode on uh, Virgin like last year. And wow. there's a debated portion, and the fact that you just brought up, uh, you know, you and Gary and, you know, him taking care of you after the abortion, their debate did or did you not have sex with Gary at his grandmother's house. I say no, because he just had an abortion. Exactly. Um, I'd say, I, I said no. Yeah. No. He respect, I mean, that's my, my guess, is that he, he respected me too much. And, I mean, not too much, actually. The right <laughs> amount. <laughs> the right amount. The perfect amount. Um, he respected me, and I don't, there's no way. No, no, there's that's no way that, we could have right, sex. Mike, because, but, and I think that's what would keep him more wanting to be with me because there's the hope of that and there's the romance of that, you know? <laughs> um, no, he was that character was in love with me, so no, I don't think we had <laughs> it's sex probably that a good thing you didn't because, no. you know, he would end up being a dead fuck anyway. Yeah. And, of course, you know where I'm going <laughs> yeah, with this yeah. because the same actor went on to play Ted in Friday the 13th. Ah, he that's, did. Yes. That's, that's why he's, you don't want to be a dead fuck. Nice. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, there you go. It all worked out. Well, right? there you go, Mike. 
she did not have sex with Gary at his grandmother's house. <laughs> there, yeah, I have to say I did not have sex with him. No, I, I agree. I, I'm backing that. All right. And then lastly, we're doing this whole thing on Canon and we, we're going through all of our favorites. And I have to ask you the question. I'm going to okay. give you a turn in this, but you can't pick Virgin. Okay. What is your favorite Canon movie? I want to say the one that Catherine Mary Stewart was in. The Apple. That yeah. one did not make our list. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so I'll ask you. So we'll make it easy yeah, then. I mean, Bronson or Chuck Norris? I'm sorry. I think I got to go Bronson. Yeah, I agree. Maybe I that's agree. wrong, but I'm a bit more old school. But I, I do have to bring up something before uh, before I go, because this is like super yeah, important. My daughter is a filmmaker, oh, cool. and I'm going to put her name out there. Her name is Olivia De Laurentiis, and she um, did this ser- like this web series called Sugar Babies. And I'm in one of the episodes. It's like a web series, and she does comedy. So everybody go watch Olivia De Laurentiis. Look for Barely Legal Comedy. And you better put the comedy in there or you're going to get porn. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> barely legal comedy. And I'll look for sugar babies. And if, again, sugar babies, you just don't put that comedy in there. You are going to just get porn, which is fine. <laughs> she's hilarious, beautiful, funny. She's much more talented than I am. Wow. So um, check it out. Olivia De Laurentiis, barely legal comedy. YouTube sugar babies. All right. And there you go. That's my little. I will definitely check that out. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Okay. Bye. All right, Brandon. Uh, for my first one, I went for a more random Canon picture and that is the Texas chainsaw massacre Two. Ooh, good pick. Ooh, comedy. Yeah. I didn't even realize this was a canon movie until you guys invited me on the show and I looked up the list. And I just love how how such a different take on the whole genre is, especially since it's done by the same director as the first movie. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's a totally different tone and style of movie. But I think that's what's nice about it because there's no way you're going to be able to top the original. Menachem did not like it. Well, I just love how Tobe Hooper thinks that the original was comedy. Yeah. Like this one. <laughs> yeah. But Golan was really upset when this was when he first screened this movie because he thought he was going to get like a really gritty movie like the original. Right. And Toby wanted to like you were saying he wanted to add more comedy to it, more a new element. Golan was really upset. That's uh what was the name of the other movie that uh Toby Hopper did for them? It's uh, Mars Inva- Invasion Invaders, from Invaders yeah. from Mars. Invaders from Mars. It's Invaders from Mars. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually yeah. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> uh, it, he Golan hated that movie as well, yeah. but it was a package deal. Like for him to get the one, he had to do the other. So yeah, I've always wanted to see that one because some of the visuals for that movie are just so out there. I mean, yeah, Golan and Globus, they were involved very heavily in the filmmaking process, but if they wanted a certain director or somebody to come in, they kind of gave them free reign to create a project for them. Right. You know, a lot of that stuff that he was able to put in that movie, I don't think would have gotten gotten by in any other studio. Sounds like Disney today. Yeah. Well, a lot of the, a lot of those guys that came over, they had free range because they pulled them over. Right. Exactly. Like John Cassavetes, like, you know, with the, the time. In the, he would have never let anybody add time to a movie, especially when he asked him to cut time from the movie. <laughs> you know? And that's how they get these big stars in is they, you know, they'd say, hey, look, we'll pay you more money and we'll let you do whatever the fuck you want. And it worked. It worked fantastically. Until the end. Until the end. Until they started 
kind of spreading yeah. themselves way too thin. And Chop Top is still one of my favorite characters from any movie. Just and there's actually weird. supposed to be a sequel to this one with just about Chop Top, too, that never really? got released. Yeah. I think it was done by Hooper's son or someone related to him. They probably ran out of money. I, I've got a question. Does Leatherface know that you raid his wardrobe? <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love that they copy the Breakfast Club poster for yes. that, that movie. That is fucking amazing. And then put it on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Yeah. For me, growing up, that was one of the iconic VHS boxes. Yep. Like, out of all of the VHS boxes you saw growing up, simple. It was to the point. It was a good visual. And it was iconic because you knew that pose from the Breakfast Club. And it sets the tone for the movie. It, it really does. does. It yeah. does. It's all you need to know. You look at that VHS box, and you know. And a lot of canon covers were like that. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. All right, so for my first pick, I'm going to go with something a little bit later down the line. There's so many movies in canon that I I want to pick, but I think this one was good. Even though I'm not a huge Chuck Norris fan, but there's so many redeeming qualities in this movie that I have to just grab this one now. And that's 1986's Delta Force. Yes, with uh, with Chuck Norris, Lee Marvin. They uh, they they. This is where they started to spend money because most of their movies they only spent like one or two million dollars on, sometimes yeah. even less than a million dollars. This movie they spent twelve million dollars on, which is an insane amount, especially for 1986. Well, it has an all star cast. It really <laughs> it, does. It does. I want to. It well, really does. I know what they spent. The twelve million dollars was had to be all on effects because they well let me uh just go back a little bit so they they spent 12 they only took in 17 but that was kind of typical for a canon flick where they'd make four or five million dollars on each movie so this was even a win for them you know by today's standards if you saw that they only pulled in 17 you'd be like oh it's garbage but that's what that that was their market back then but then that changed a little bit later a couple years later and they kind of ruined it but Lee Marvin's in this movie. It's his last role. He's basically dying through the movie. He moves around like he utter is. dog shit. Oh, he looks horrible. Even on the box where him and uh, Chuck, Chuck Norris. Norris are holding the... Uh, I'm trying to think... Not the name. I was trying to think of the grenade launcher thing that they're holding. He's just holding it so horribly around his waist. You could tell he can't even lift it. Well, then it kind of looks like he's propped up. Like he's leaning yeah. on something like out of <laughs> that you can't see. It's like behind him, you know. Oh, it's so terrible. Uh, but you can see as the movie's going on, his health is just diminished. It's really evident, and he died the next year. So I mean, it was right around the corner. The other great part of this movie is that Robert Forster. Uh, a lot of people you might know him. Uh, he was the bail bondsman in uh, Jackie Brown. Yeah, he actually plays the main bad guy. So this white dude. Robert Forster yeah. is playing a Middle Eastern guy named Abdul, and he pulls it off pretty decent. He did. Now, what I love about this movie is that they were able not only to get away with the Robert Forster bullshit, but it was a time where we could have two Israeli filmmakers come to America, make a big budget action movie about a plane hijacking by terrorists. And it's a fun, rompous, good time. Oh, it certainly is. The great thing is that they filmed this in Israel. Yeah. 
they had created this uh, Israeli, I think they called it like the uh, Canon Communication Center or something. Yeah. They built this huge thing with a studio by the mountains and they filmed it all there. So they probably saved a shitload of money and that all went into the, the huge yeah. explosions. The end is great where uh, he meets them on the bike as they're driving up the road. He's uh, Chuck Norris is on the motorcycle. Fucking awesome movie. But this starts the downfall yeah. for canon. And that's another reason I kind of want to start right here because everything was always no frills before this point. And then right here in 1986, they moved into uh, their headquarters. It was in Los Angeles. And they held a black tie release party for the new canon Los Angeles headquarters and for Delta Force. And they had all these people coming to their three-story parking garage that was next to the building, and they laid down AstroTurf in the parking lot. <laughs> what better way for Globin and Globus to have a black tie event in a fucking parking garage? But that was kind of the downfall, man. They, you know, they they were trying to act like ballers right there, and this is where it started to roll downhill. And that's the problem. They were the fake it till you make it guys. And they were great at being the fake it till you make it guys. And once they made it, they tried to be the, the big time, make it all the time guys. And that didn't work. I think more it was Golan that was the make it all the time guy. I think Globus was a little bit more, let's watch what we do with our money. Yeah. yeah. Golan said, fuck it. Let's. Well, that's eventually why they did the, the two cousins split up and went their own separate ways. Right. All right, so that leads to you, Mark. All right. Well, you guys know where I'm going with my first pick. That's yeah, the no-brainer, and that's the most financially successful movie that Golan and Globus did during the canon years, and that's 1984's smash hit. It's number one in your hearts. It's breaking. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have never seen this movie. Uh, growing up, for me, this is one of my all-time favorite films. I've seen this countless times, and it's not like I'm a breakdancer. I'd love to see that. <laughs> Dabbled when I was a uh, seven or eight year old, entered a breakdancing contest or two. Didn't do so well when my shoe flew out into the audience. Did you bring your own cardboard? Uh, no, I, it was on a hardwood floor. Uh, well, so, but anyway. Do you have the numbers for this one? They only they only spent a little over a million bucks. Yeah. Brought in 60 worldwide. Yep. It's a huge score for Canon. I've loved this movie for as long as I've loved movies, I think. It's one of the first movies I latched onto as a youngster, and I'd watched it over and over and over, and I still continue watching it. And it's not like Lucinda Dickey's the greatest actress in the world. She's quite horrible in this film, but I think that's what's charming. Or breakdancer. Oh, she's horrible. <laughs> she is a great dancer, a horrible breakdancer. And as we've mentioned before, the first appearance of Jean-Claude Van Damme in a canon film. Yes. And it's equally as epic as the dance in Kickboxer. Yeah, I would agree. So wait, his first movie uh, for canon was a breakdancing movie? Yes. Yeah, you yeah, ever see him kick? That, oh, I, I, now I got to watch he, it. He's just in the background. Yeah, he was a background. Do splits? Now, I wouldn't even say background dancer. He was in the crowd clapping yeah. along and dancing. Happening to it's be like a leotard, a leotard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fucking epic. But again, this is where they kind of shot themselves in the foot because, as they would do, if they scored a hit, Golan would immediately try to cash in on a sequel. Yeah, and with this one, they they kind of missed the boat because they they hit it with Breakin', they beat out Beat Street, 
And then he was like, let's just put out a second one. And by the time Electric Boogaloo came out, which is the sequel, nobody really, like, it wasn't that big of a deal, breakdancing, especially a breakdancing movie. So they spent a little bit over a million dollars on that one. They only brought in 16. So financially, it was still a pretty good nut, you know? I remember Electric Boogaloo a little bit better because it was always on HBO. It was. With Breakin', people always forget. Yes, of course, it had Lucinda Dickey, Shabadoo, and Michael Bugaloo Shrimp. You know, your three core players, but also Christopher McDonald, great cameo yes. appearance in that. Shooter McGavin. Yeah, Shooter McGavin. That's Christopher McDonald. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. And then also, uh, can't forget Ice T, his first appearance in, in film, the beginning of his acting career. It was Breakin'. Shit. So, landmark film, underappreciated. I don't know if you remember, although this has never been confirmed. This is just my personal theory. Uh, Breakin' was remade in the early 2000s and uh, renamed Save the Last Dance. I was going to say that. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. They, they, it was definitely inspired by Breakin'. It's the same story where a white affluent female dancer, you know, goes to dance with the quote unquote street kids. Yep. And... The cultures collide, but they, there's a love interest, and it's the same story. When they were doing their uh, their whole sales pitch in Cannes, they actually brought Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp to Cannes to dance for people yeah. to sell that movie. Hell, that would have sold it. Yeah, it's pretty crazy shit. All right, so I just picked Breakin' as my favorite all-time canon film. And for some backup on this one, here is the original King of Crenshaw, Ozone himself, Shabadabadoo. Shabadoo, <laughs> welcome to the Poop Culture Podcast. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here in poop, with the Poop Culture. Yeah, <laughs> the almighty. <laughs> you know, that was tough to say, you know, the Poop Culture, you know. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Yeah, it is. It it's is. not a science I, I can just say, why can't we... Can I just could I have just said PC? You can. Yeah. yeah. Some people do. Yeah. Poop culture, PC. The show is not too PC, though. This episode that we're doing is on canon films. Now, Menachem Golden okay. was quite a character himself. Yes, he was. What do you remember about him? You know, initially I was I was called in to I was called in for a meeting to choreograph breaking. I wasn't called in to be in the movie at all. I mean, the, in the script, Ozone was written for, like, I think he's an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, kind of a dropout sort of kid, street kid. So I, I met with Menachem Golan. It was kind of like meeting Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> uh, I remember sitting there and eating a watermelon and, and spitting out seeds, watermelon seeds, and they hit, it sounded something like, Havadu, he's like, Havadu, what's <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he just threw out this question, he said, you know, at one point in the in in the meeting, he says, "You know, Kavadu, can you act?" And I was like, uh, "I said, I'm from Chicago." And he just kind of like looked at me. He said, "Okay, Kavadu from Chicago." He said, "We go over to this casting place." I went over to the casting place, and uh, I wasn't really a, an actor per se, but I just, you know, I, I I did have a strong sense of myself, and it, it comes across like you are, though. You, you did it. You did it pretty damn well. When I met with them, I was in full Shabadoo regalia, so I mean, it looked like I did the movie. No, that's not a costume. Those are my clothes. <laughs> nice. I mean, I used to go. I used to go grocery shopping in those clothes and do my laundry in those clothes. If you can imagine. 
That makes two of us then. You know, could you could you imagine going to the asparagus aisle and running into me there at, at the grocery store? You know, that kind sounds of... out of place, but it's not yeah. as out of place if you're a fat white kid in New England and you're wearing the same things going to the grocery store. It's like, hey, what are you doing with that earring? Ma, there's a guy with an earring in the asparagus section. He's wearing a rabbit's tail. Yeah. He, my my fox tails. Foxtail. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're wearing foxtails, Ma. You know, you know, those are my regular clothes. In any case, uh, that that was what I remember about Menachem. He just was this imposing figure. And it, it, he did remind me reminded me of Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> I think you're the second person I've heard describe him that way. <laughs> well he was just this kind of, he was a, he was an aggressive person and he was so aggressive. And every time I've ever really met Menachem, he's eating something. Because, <laughs> okay, you know what's funny right now is that I've been re- relocating my storage, right? And I came across all these, like, ozone-esque artifacts today. Oh, wow. You know, I saw my coat. Like, I had my military coat, my ozone military coat. And I was like, let me put it on to see if it... And I put it on and it kind of glowed. Uh, are, wow. we, are we talking about the uh, the leather one that you had? Yeah, like I, I, I often wore this black one that probably didn't, probably made it to the movie, but it was part of that old ozone esque era. Uh, I found my belt and oh, the wow. fridge, and I put no, and I stood there in my garage and I put it on. <laughs> <laughs> and then you went food shopping. No, and I, I said I glowed for a minute. It was oh. like a glow ring, one of those mood rings. I kind of just glowed. And I just basked in my '80s glow, but it was uh, it it was it was beautiful. Nice. Any case, I quickly put it away before my neighbor came. <laughs> he's like, hey, this guy's movie is mine. <laughs> Obviously, everybody knows that you're ozone. Why not wear it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I get the oddest ones. I was I was out to I was out to dinner with a friend. We were we were trying this wonderful Italian restaurant located in Eagle Rock. This waitress wasn't really responsive to my needs because I was like, I might have to ask for more balsamic vinegar and in olive oil. I'm gonna lose my mind. And it was like the third time I asked for it. Then she came over later and said, Are you an actor? <laughs> and I was like, I sorry, sorry, I put on my thespian sort of voice. I said, yeah, Of course I am, dear. Of course I'm an actor. She said, Are you the guy from Breaking? I was like, Oh Lord. <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> We get a live one here. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like when they do, they, they get on giddy. Um, whatever age they were, I'm finding out, whatever age they were, when they saw break, when they see me again, they turn that age again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... We, that the most, okay, here's a remarkable one. I was doing this, this special, uh, it was called the Chactacular Special with Shaquille O'Neal, right? And Shaquille O'Neal, I get this, I get this, this like, order or command. Shaquille wants to see you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, you know, can't say no to him. So I go over there. I go, you know, I get over there. He's like, you're my hero. And he was acting like he was 10 years old. I was like, slow down, man. <laughs> He's like seven two. <laughs> it was crazy. But, it, but I find whatever age it is. So I think he must have seen me when he was like 10. And if you're like 15, whatever age you are. You know, that's a, that's a movie premise. Whatever age you are, when you meet Ozone, you will revert to that age again. Kind of like sci-fi meets breaking. Well, you're keeping all of us young. That's the thing. It's like hot tub. 
the movie Hot Tub. Yeah, yep, Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you, you, okay, what you have to do, you have to stroke my tail. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man, that's a, that's a button right there. We got to make. Oh, that's big. That's huge. That's huge. You know what? In in, in Hollywood, they call that uh, what they call those kind of movies as the high high concept film. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. Yeah, you know, though. you stroke his tail and you, 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 like, it transports you back to that era, whatever it, age you were. It's just like collecting, like, Mark and I are both 40 years old. So a lot of the stuff that we have in our studios are, you know, like, I have a huge DVD collection. But besides that, I have, like, a lot of nostalgic things from, you know, the 80s and 90s growing up. And it's not mm-hmm. that it makes you, like, revert back to that, but you have those memories that come back when you see those things around you. kind of makes you feel good. So when people watch Breaking, you make them feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I put it, you know, that, you, seriously, though, I'm mean, making light of everything, but it, it does feel good that the film have re- has resonated with so many different people around the world and and that it brought real joy to their lives and even even focused them to, to, to realize their careers. It, 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 it's pretty remarkable. All right, Shabba. So in the movie, in Breakin', the music you guys were listening to and the music that's in the movie, was that authentic? Were you, what were you really dancing to? Certainly not Ollie and Jerry. We were dancing. I don't know about those guys, but I was dancing to uh, uh, Rogers. Uh, Will You Be My Neighbor? I was, I was actually locking to that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you could probably lock to anything. And if you play some of those songs backwards, you can almost hear uh, hear him say, "Will you be my neighbor?" in the record. Really? But you have to play it backwards. Oh my no, God. no. What? <laughs> I was, yeah, I was like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> all right. If Shabadoo tells me to play my breaking soundtrack backward, I'm gonna listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, now, 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 if you play it backward, now we just say, mm, "Sucker, mm, sucker." <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> They, 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 no, seriously, some of the songs that we were dancing to, we were just dancing to click tracks. Oh, really? Well, there's one song, Dan Hartman wrote a song called We Are the Young. Uh, we Are the Young was, was supposed to be the song, and we were dancing to that song. And then Ollie and Jerry came in, and they wrote uh, There's No Stopping Us. Right. And, and like that. Uh, there was a number of those songs like that that were swapped out. We, we weren't dancing to those actual songs uh, on the set they're dubbed in later yeah that's kind of always what i had thought now one of the funny interesting stories that we always talk about here on the poop culture podcast every time i bring up breaking of course someone has to bring up the jean-claude van damme cameo in the film (laughs) yeah what did you guys did you guys recognize (laughs) i mean he sticks out like a sore thumb in that scene well i did we did uh we actually okay but of course he was an unknown Uh, right right you know we just thought, you know, who's that crazy white boy, you know? <laughs> he's weird. With the blue sneakers and striped socks. No, that was an outfit. And why is he wearing that sock in his hair? But it was, you know, <laughs> that guy, we, we were just like, okay, we just think, we kind of laughed about it. But, you know, like, who's that crazy white boy? <laughs> and then later he became Jean-Claude Van Damme. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he was an extra, you know. Yeah, he was an extra. It was his first movie. I thought I always thought there's been a number. There's been a number of people that have approached me about doing a Breakin' Three or some kind of digital series based on Breakin' or what have you. And I've written, I've written one. And the one I've written 
I've actually written a part for Jean-Claude Van Damme to kind of re, you know, oh, to nice. like, you know, bring back the role. Like, you know, if he just appears in the movie, I think people would lose it. <laughs> there he is oh again. Oh, my God. If he's in the background. And just in the background, you know, kind of dancing the way he dances. Yeah. You know, uh, if he... And I think people would just lose it. Uh, it was just one of those types of things. And, you know, wouldn't, you know, again, shoot it just the way it was before. Right. No no close-ups or any, no indicators like, hey, look at this young club. Let the people catch him again. You know, like, oh, there he is again. It would be like a sighting, you know, a Jean-Claude sighting. Did you ever see his dance in uh, Kickboxer? Yeah, I've seen him on it. Which is better, his dance in Breaking or his dance in Kickboxer? Um, Kickboxer is better. I mean, on a, that on, a, on a better chip, but I like the other one more because it was honest. <laughs> okay, the original one was just so honest and so on point that you can't, for what it is. Uh, but I think he tried to improve the formula for the other one. He's a little you know, bit, oh, he, he danced a little bit better. He's still horrible, but <laughs> he, he, he is certainly a man. better kickboxer than he can. We should have did the kick worm, then it would have been great. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know what's really crazy, guys? We was, I was talking to uh, talking to some friends about remember the okay, remember the eighties? People were crazy in the eighties, okay? Like I would remember yeah. I would remember walking down the street like in the in the eighties and like people like like certain people that looked like they obviously worked in offices or maybe insurance companies would suddenly do the kick worm. <laughs> Like, it was just odd moment. <laughs> for no reason? Yeah, for no reason. Like, they would just do it. Like, they were nuts or something. It was it's just a very wild, strange time in history, I think. Was it the best decade? I, I think so. Well, I don't know. The 70s were pretty cool, man. Yeah, see, I, I was only two. Okay, well, I started I, I started that. on Soul Train, all right? That's how I started my career. It was one of the original Soul Train gang, and then later became one of the original founding members of the Lockers. Right. And that led to my old TV series, which we're going to get into it in another show. But and then that kind of led me up, led up to the Break It movie. But the 70s are very cool. All right. So 70s versus 80s, you're going to give the edge to the 70s. I, I think so. Yes. Wow. Uh, which what would make it? What's the tipping point? Well, for me, it, it was just it was the climate. The climate in the 70s is very similar to what it is today. You know, we have terrorism. We have and we pretty much and then the, in the, the, the I don't mean to strike a, a serious note here so much, but we do have a climate now in America where we where we, we haven't really come to grips with ourselves as a nation. Right. And so yeah. we have a lot of this yeah. like racism and accusations of racism and everyone's on eggshells. You know, people people worry that you know, kids are worried about getting shot in schools and you have this 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 like, ubiquitous terrorism that's everywhere. And uh, and it was and it's unsettling. We're unsettled, and and people are not really sure. happy as as happy as we could be because we're we're just in constant red alert, you know. And in the United States in the seventies, we had you know the Vietnam War was still on, still pretty much was embroiled in the civil rights movement. You had all these things, and people were trying to you know have identities and establish identities, and you had all of that stuff. In that way, I I think. The seventies is unique, and so the eighties. It was a lot of a lot of fun. It was the birth. I would think it would be the true birth of of hip hop as we know it. I'm surely I'm I'm certain that there were elements of it stirring around in the seventies, but it hadn't really you know right. uh, come together. 
in, at the, to the point where we recognize it as a full-fledged culture. So, you know, 80s were cool. 80s, I think 70s were cool. I like the 80s very much, but I would have to give the edge, the edge to the 70s overall. All right, interesting. So I think from what you're saying, so like once you hit the 80s, everybody hit, let their hair down and was like, fuck it. Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's right. do whatever. Let's let's wear like uh, studded belts yeah. and uh, foxtails and we could, and nobody cared because that it was the 80s. You're obsessed with these foxtails, man crush. Dude, the foxtails, that's... I think we have a foxtail fetish brewing here. Yeah, I'm going to get you one of those. I'm going to get you a foxtail. Or, 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 no, don't enable him. I think we should get him help. Maybe he needs help. Maybe maybe he's trying out. Yeah, this coming from the guy who wore the foxtails originally and gave us the idea. Okay, okay, okay. I think this this foxtail fetish is stemming from some, maybe some bad incident at at a zoo or petting zoo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what happened there? Tell it. Tell tell the world about it. I don't it know. Right now. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get hypnotized. I'm gonna have to go under. To the world that wants out. to know what happened. I mean, if you pet that fox, what happened? What what really happened? What went down? I can't. <laughs> like, I'm gonna plead the fifth. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. I can't. <laughs> Hey, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Shabba. You were always an inspiration to me. Uh, at eight years old, you inspired me to enter into a breakdancing competition. Unfortunately, that came to an abrupt end when my shoe flew off into the crowd. But uh, <laughs> I have an eight-year-old of my own now. Who uh, uh, Just this past year, I showed him breaking for the first time, and uh, he's currently enrolled in hip-hop dance classes himself. So, Oh, that's awesome. What, what's his name? What's his name? His name's Jackson. Okay, tell Jackson I said hello. I will. So your art continues to inspire the next generation. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, man. Man, my pleasure, man. So again, thank you for having me on. It's been nice hanging with you guys. A lot of fun. Hey, thanks again, Shabadabadoo. Hey, love you guys. Bye, poop culture. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so going back to me, I got to go with a really easy one. I don't even think I wrote it down because it's so easy. You mentioned Jean-Claude Van Damme. So I have to go with his first movie, and that's Bloodsport. Yeah. And they uh, they spent about a million dollars on this movie, and it only took in about 12. Again, it's a big hit for canon. But initially, Golan hated the movie, and Jean-Claude Van Damme actually re-edited the movie himself. I'm sure he didn't physically do it himself, but he sat in the editing room with the guys and edited out the whole story basically and just made it a fight tournament movie and it's it's a magical fucking flick yeah. if you haven't seen Bloodsport, you're living under a rock shit's on tv <laughs> every weekend and i always get a little upset when people like kind of foo-foo this movie or jean-claude van damme because it's like you can't give it a bad name because it's always on fucking television this is a movie that came out in 1988 it's 30 years ago it's still playing you know, I, you see it all the time. I have an eight-year-old, and uh, I just showed him this movie, and he absolutely loved it. He only likes movies that are nonstop action. Like if there's a movie that if there's a little bit of a lull, he gets bored immediately. He probably would have hated the original version, right? But he loved this version. Well, the uh, the movie Bloodsport. If you haven't seen it, it's about uh, Frank Dukes. This. Uh, so it's total bullshit story, but the guy sold it as is really a real story where he like went AWOL from the army. He was like this high level uh, karate champion 
Is it a bullshit story, though? It's, I've always it's heard a it's a story. true story. Nah, or it's bullshit. So there is no real Frank Dukes, or there is? No, there's a real no. There's a real Frank Dukes. He just made up the bullshit story. Oh, so he never fought in the Kumite. No, he, he does not have a two-second knockout in the Kumite. He did not set world <laughs> records at the Kumite. It's fucking okay. all fabricated bullshit. It's... It is what it is. But a, a better story that came out of Bloodsport is how uh, Golan and Jean-Claude Van Damme actually met. And it wasn't during um, break-in. It was actually a couple years later, Golan went to a restaurant to eat dinner, and his waiter was Jean-Claude Van Damme. And supposedly this is a story, and this is why I bring it up after Frank Dukes, because I don't. nobody knows if it's actually true, but both guys claim it is. And if it is, it's an amazing story. So he says to the guy, you know, he's like, oh, are you Golan? And, then, and he said, yes, who are you? He said, I'm Jean-Claude Van Damme. You know, I know you from blah, blah, blah. So he puts something on his head. I forgot what it was, like a piece of cake or some shit, and, like, kicks it off his head without touching him. So Golan is impressed, gives him his card, says, come see me tomorrow. And then they go and they sit down for a meeting and uh, you know Jean-Claude Van Damme's telling him how he wants to be a star and he could do splits and he's got muscles and all this shit. And Golan's like, look, actors sell movies, not muscles and splits. So Jean-Claude Van Damme starts crying and Golan feels bad, leaves the room and comes back with the Bloodsport script and says, OK, fine. You want to be a, an action star here and gives him Bloodsport and the rest is history. Supposedly, wow. that's the story. I'm going to buy it. If they, I don't care if they both fabricated it and just said this is both the story we're going with. <laughs> That's like the greatest story ever. So I choose to believe that. That's a good story, though. <laughs> it is. All right, so we'll move on. Mine was Bloodsport. Brandon? Uh, my choice is the black sheep to your Tommy boy, as in going with kickboxer. Oh, very nice. Okay. Which is very close to the same premise, except... Leading up to the fight is a bit different. He loses his... Well, he doesn't lose his brother. His brother gets paralyzed in a mm -hmm. kickboxing fight. So he decides to get revenge and does the whole karate kid thing and goes and gets trained and kicks some trees and hurts his leg and cries a little bit. <laughs> and Gets drunk and dances. Like a fucking, <laughs> yeah. It's a best scene in that movie. So good. And I remember seeing this movie when I was a kid because my cousin owned it. And every time I would sleep over at his house, I would wake up early in the morning and put it on. So I've seen this movie so many times. I thought you were going to say you were going to you kick the wall. <laughs> you should just go over his house and <laughs> kick the wall. <laughs> I love the scene when he's getting ready for the fight and he's hearing that big thud sound. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Tong Pu. That kind of one-ups the, uh, the tree for sure. Tong Pu. Yeah, it takes the whole fucking wall out. It takes out the column. I still think the uh, the training montage sequences in Bloodsport are, are way better. But they're not really... What training montages are they? It's more fighting montages. No, in the beginning. The whole training montage where he's learning from Oh, the as a kid, you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that stuff. I don't know, man. He kicks down a tree in Kickboxer. Yeah, I think kickboxing training montages are better. And he does the the, the split with the rope. With the, um, yeah. The, oh yeah. The, the that's in Bloodsport. Where they they qu no, they that's kickboxer. Him. No, it's kickboxer. Listen, man. In Bloodsport, he's on the chairs. No, in Bloodsport, yeah. in the beginning when they are yeah. training him, he they have his arms and legs on pulleys, and he he lifts himself up and then pulls one of the uh, the fucking trees dude, that's, like out that's of the ground. Kickboxer, dude. 
I call bullshit. That is Bloodsport. We'll stop this goddamn podcast right now and put in a copy of Bloodsport. Wait a minute, guys. They're both they're both fantastic films, and if anybody doesn't like them, they'll throw salt right in their eyes. Like Mr. Miyagi. Or not Mr. Mr. Fuji. I want to see a fight between Mr. Miyagi and Bolo Young and Mr. Fuji and all that. It's just salt to salt fight. But yeah, no, that's in Bloodsport. That's <laughs> no, when he learns that's to That's definitely kickboxer. No. Dude. He that's yes. when he in the beginning of Bloodsport, when he's teaching him how to focus. Because they show it in the flashback during the Kumite after he gets the salt in his eyes and he's having the flashbacks of all the training montages. The part he learned to focus is that he had him drawed and quartered on these pulleys on these two giant wooden tree posts. All right, let's just agree to disagree here. So we got three people saying kickboxer and Mark saying blood sport. Is that is that kind of what the, uh, the count is here? So we'll get back to this. Okay. We'll research this and get back to it. Okay. Keep in mind, I've never seen Kickboxer. <laughs> so it could be in both movies. <laughs> it would be the canon way. Recycle we'll just, footage. We'll just highlight that caveat by saying I have never even seen Kickboxer. It's so I've seen good. clips of it, but I've never seen it in, in its entirety. You've dreamt it. All right, Mike. My, my next pick is just the absolute very best arm wrestling movie of all time. And that's over the top. Oh, hands yeah. down. St- starring the great Sly Stallone. I love this fucking movie. I, do I used too. to rent the shit out of it. I watch it to this day. I show it to my nieces and nephews. I own the <laughs> fucking soundtrack. I've got the 45 single of the stupid fucking song that plays two or three times throughout the movie. And you know what the best part about it is? It's not just an arm wrestling movie, it's a father son tale. It is, and I used to watch this movie with my dad all the time. You know what the most redeeming quality of the movie is? Is Robert Loja in it? <laughs> yeah, Loja's great. He is. He is great in that. It's just fucking perfect, man. The rippling muscles, Kenny Loggins <laughs> in the background, Terry Funk. You're driving. You're Terry working Funk out. is great. He gets thrown through a window, dude. The scene where he drives the fucking truck like through the front gates is intense, man. And that truck is all he has. That's probably why he gets so little money for it at the end when he has to sell it to bet on himself. Yes. Yeah. He gets like seven grand for that fucking thing. Yeah. I, I adore this movie and there's not a, movie, a lot of, a lot of things I can say I adore, but I adore. I, lo- I do. I love the fucking movie, man. I, I mean, it-, it is a father and son movie. I watched it with my father growing up. I absolutely love it. It's good. Cheesy Stallone at his best. But in a serious manner. Yeah. Like, he's not like uh, Tango and Cash cheesy. Or Oscar cheesy. No, this is Stallone being Stallone. Not quite Rocky, but It's the Rocky of arm wrestling. Oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Lincoln Hawk, Rocky Balboa. Uh, I think Lincoln Hawk had him on the intelligence factor. Not in Rocky Four. Actually, in Rocky Three, all of a sudden he becomes fucking a genius. Yeah, <laughs> he can read. Yeah, he's doing all kinds of things. <laughs> Chemistry. Something just got jarred loose. <laughs> just the fact that he can actually drive is, is yeah. like, yeah, a Lamborghini of all cars or yeah. Ferrari, whatever he had. Yeah, because young Rocky Balboa definitely took the short bus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He was in the class that had the shade they pulled down. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, it was right next to the boiler room. 
Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you had a special ed room in your high school, inevitably it was right next to the boiler room. In any high school. It was. <laughs> or in the boiler room. Or in the boiler room. <laughs> Just to drown out the clapping of the ABCs. <laughs> Do you call bullshit on this? This is the, my biggest debate about this movie. Okay. And we, we have to talk about it. I'm the over-the-top move. Okay? Like, okay. nobody in the history of fucking arm wrestling ever thought of just re-gripping your fingers so you're <laughs> over the top of their fucking thumb. And, like, if you tried that in their serious competitive world, you don't think his head would have got driven through a fucking concrete wall oh, by dude. then? Listen, man, it, in real life, it makes absolutely no sense. But there's not one fucking kid that didn't see that movie and then arm wrestle somebody yes. and do the same shit. And it yes, works That every started time. the arm wrestling epidemic that's what, of the 80s. That's what Sylvester Stallone has done for, for his whole audience. You mimic this motherfucker. Well, there is a professional you know, like, arm wrestling league now because of this movie. Still, I'm not even talking. About, I'm just talking about just everything he does, like his mannerisms, the things that he puts into each character. Like it's just like, you know, I walk around the fucking house and I'm like, oh, you know, this, food, this turtle food's got more moths than flies, you know. And, do you have a you know, Do you have a set of turtles named Cuff and Link as well? No, I've got. He doesn't even have turtles. That's my testicles. Is Cuff and Link? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fucking love over the top. I do too. I remember everybody when that came out, was arm wrestling in elementary school. Everybody there was an arm wrestling is. table in the fucking cafeteria. Yeah. It was serious and, business. And honestly, man, you go through the canon film list and you and you look at it like, how the hell did these guys like go bank? How they lose their company? Because these are the things I watch so much. And it's just like if they just not spent their money so quickly... They would have made all of it back in rentals and TV. They yeah. would have been good. If they just would have oh, kept, yeah. held on to it. If they didn't make 50 yeah. movies in 1986. Yeah. Because back then there was no licensing. Nobody licensed things. Yeah. But whoever owns those movies now is fucking making bad. Oh, they're it's, making uh, It's sure. MGM and uh, Universal owns them. Sons of bitches. Probably explains why they haven't made good movies in a long time. Probably. Yeah. They're, they're, they're cursed. That was a great pick. I got the poster over there too, so I'll give you double points. Do you? All right. I've always yeah. wanted it. It's it's up right over there, right below the projector. I'm I'm so jealous. All right, Brandon. All right, I'm gonna go with Masters of the Universe. Oh, oh that's a good one. Not really. Hell yeah. Not. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a bad bad movie. This is the, the key, downfall. The but it but it's bad in a good way. Oh, I love it. It is bad in a good way. I'll give you that. I kept saying before, this is the beginning and the end. This is the end of canon right here. They struck a deal with Mattel during this movie where they would split production costs in half. So Mattel would do one half and canon would do the, the back half. Smart. So they did it halfway through the movie. Mattel ran out of their production money. They said to canon, okay, you're up. And canon looked at them and said, Ah, we don't have anything to put into it. So at this point in the movie, Mattel had to pony up and just keep paying, but they didn't give them the full amount that uh, Canon and Ray said they were going to pay into it. So if you watch the movie, it gets to about the middle, and then it just gets fucking weird. And then you watch the end yep. scene where they're, at first they're in like this like internal like pit, 
I guess it's supposed to be Snake Mountain or something. I don't know where they're supposed to be because oh. all the characters are fucking made up. Yeah, I don't think they were in uh, Castle Grayskull. Yeah, they're in some weird spot, but it's pretty nice. Then all of a sudden, he's killing him, and it just looks like a room with blankets around it. Oh, yeah. It's just fucking weird because they ran out of money, and they couldn't leave the movie just hanging, so they added all this black drop cloths, and there was only like a single work light, and it looked like somebody just draped it in their garage. It was fucking bizarre. Yeah, and that movie soaked up so much of their money. I mean- that was the one thing Canon used to do is they would move money around from projects to projects. Like they picked up the rights for it was Masters of the Universe from Mattel, and there was one other franchise that they picked up that was a toy. They picked up Spider Spider Man for uh, two hundred fifty grand, which yep. they ended up losing because they and never Captain made it. America, and yep. they had budgeted Spider Man for a twenty million dollar movie, but then after picking up Masters of the Universe and going into production in that. They took the Spider-Man money and mo- made Spider-Man a seven million dollar movie, yeah. and they're like, no. and then the director backed out and said he yeah. couldn't do it. Right, and it never got made. Thank God. But I don't know. I'd well, kind of like to see his canon Spider-Man movie. The funny story about the Spider-Man movie was they were changing the whole thing. They were going to make it into a horror movie. Right. So you would still get bit by the spider as a kid, but then he would turn into the, like this grotesque spider. Right, it would be you like know, the fly, but it would yeah. be Spider-Man. <laughs> Typical canon. But yeah. this movie right here that you're talking about, Brandon, they paid $22 million on, you know, estimated $22 million bucks, And that took all of Superman 4's money, too. And they only grossed 17 So they were losing money yeah. hand over fist at this point. And now it's a cult classic. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix, too. I got two words for you guys. Good journey. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking movie's fantastic. It's been so many years since I've seen it. I love how, like, the the key that transfers them between universes and worlds is a Japanese synthesizer. Yes. (laughs) And he uses, like, machine... There's, like, fucking laser machine guns and shit like that. Dude, it's... Oh, it's great. It's, like... It's just great. (laughs) You can tell I have a podcast about really shitty movies. (laughs) <laughs> this the, you'll like this part because when uh, Mattel found out that they were going to make all these weird changes to the movie, they were upset about it. Man at Arms looks like he's like ninety years old. Skeletor's cheesy as fuck. He's just got like a white mask on. Yeah, they it, teal like all the fucking play. Everybody that's in it is just badly casted. But Mattel said to them at first, like, don't change the story. But then once Mattel found out that they were going to get they were getting screwed over money wise because Mattel was actually going bankrupt at this time too, not bankrupt, but they were really losing their hat. They came back to them and they said, you know, kill people, blood, guts, gore, sex, do whatever you have to do. Just make this movie a hit. And obviously they did not do that. No, (laughs) far from it. Yeah, it doesn't even resemble the cartoon and or toy line really in any way. No, no, yeah, you're right. It's if if you're a fan of the cartoon, it's a totally different take. Right. But I can see why Mattel But it's all would, we had, man. Yeah, I'd see why Mattel would be so upset because it, here's a movie marketing their product that doesn't look or sound or act like anything like their product. So it was, you know, I can see where they were coming from on that. It was a, a, a gross misrepresentation of what the Masters of the Universe franchise really was. All right. Good pick, man. Uh, I'm going to go with 
and this the original is one of my favorite movies i love it, but i'm gonna go with the sequel and they bought it out came out about eight years after the original and that's death wish 2 i haven't seen that one i haven't seen any of the death wish franchise i've been waiting me neither really you totally, yeah you guys totally gotta see it because death wish one is a fucking classic yeah and the sequels are the most outrageous fucking nonsense yeah. ever i remember <laughs> seeing clips as a child of i think it was three where he's fighting a band of neo-nazis dude three I, are like punks is it that's part it three that was yeah, three? that's three yeah death wish three is the one when there's he's killing so many fucking people that the head bad guy actually picks up a phone because there's a phone direct to bad guys and he picks up <laughs> yeah I, I need more guys send me more guys apparently there's a number you can call like it's fucking dominant. like he's got a green room of bad guys in the back and it's he's like calling to the bullpen you know yeah. <laughs> they actually made money with these movies though charles bronson was probably the first big name that they signed to a multi-picture deal the guy was like already kind of on his way out of the business but he signed on for like five or six flicks and you know he had like 10 to midnight assassination was another one all movies i bought on vhs when i was with mike um but death wish 2 yeah i'm actually i'm looking at some of the doubles yeah i got well mine are in front of me they're just locked in this fucking thing that i can't open but uh this movie death wish 2 they only spent 2 million bucks on and they made 45 million so this was a big hit for them yeah and it was in 1982 oh, yeah. Uh, the one Mike was talking about before, I doubt anybody's going to bring it up, so I'll throw it out there. With Death Wish 3, they spent $9 million and then they took in 16 worldwide. Typical canon release there. But I love 3 because 3 is so fucking off the wall, yeah. and it, it gets away from the darkness of 1 and 2. Well, I was, it was just going to laugh because 3 actually was, if nobody picked it, I was going to totally take that. Uh, but really, Death Wish, you could put it all under one umbrella. But since since you brought up two, what I love about part two is that not only does his daughter and his wife get raped in part one, but the daughter again gets raped in part two. Oh, and then, no. Really? And then jumps out a window onto her fucking fence and kills herself. Do you blame her? Nah. I mean, and, and it, she was already it, fucked in the head. Which one is uh, Jeff Goldblum is in one of those? Is it part two or is it part one? No, that he's in? oh, it's two. It's two because uh, it's, it's two. Lawrence right? Fishburne, all those guys are in that rape scene. Yeah, oh, one wow. hell of a rape scene. I mean, oh, as it's... far as rape scenes go, top notch. <laughs> <laughs> what what the rape scenes in one and two are the most vile scenes. Stay tuned of, to the like, Poop Culture imagine. Podcast next week when we give you <laughs> our top ten rape scenes. <laughs> Oh, oh, dude, somebody so we got to put like Death Wish that. 1 and Death Wish 2 at the top of the fucking list. <laughs> yeah, they're they're fucking bad. The one in one is not a canon film, but it could I be. Know, yeah. Uh, but the one in two is fucking bad. They Lawrence Fishburne's part of that fucking rape. I'm sure he wishes he never was in that movie. Um, but three getting back to that one, it it kind of starts a new chapter because now he moves from he was in San Francisco, I think. In the first two? Yep. And then he moves to New York. And three well, actually, through five. Well, in the first one, he's in New York. Oh, was the first the one first in New York? In, oh, and then he yeah, moves away. Yeah, in the away. first one, he's in New York. He His his wife dies. His, go, his daughter goes into that the mental institution. And then he mm. goes to Texas to do some... Because he's an architect. Right. In the second one, he picks his daughter up. They're back in New York. In the third one, I think he was like somewhere else. And, and he then comes he moves back, back to visit a friend. 
Right. And New okay. York turns into like the worst place in the fucking world. Yes, but if you split those two up, like one and two are good on their own, like together. Yep, definitely. But then three, four, and five, whole different animal. Oh, yeah. Now you're fucking, you're turning it to 11. It's a war. Three through five are straight yeah. fucking war. One and two is the battle. Mm. Three through five, you're in the you're in the shit. But I think four and five are just really really bad. But three, yeah, I think, five is, is real bad. Three is like in the middle of the first set and the second set. Three is so cheap. Three is a lot of fun. That's yeah. the best part about three. And part two is just like I can't believe that kid is back on the escalator again. <laughs> <laughs> He has almost as bad luck as John McClane. Yeah. Talk about a guy who's got bad. Always in the wrong place in the wrong time. And that's funny because now Bruce Willis is playing Paul in the new movie. Pretty yeah. nice. Yeah, which I'm on the fence about. I was more excited when Stallone was attached. It's Eli Roth, though, and Eli Roth is a big Canon yeah. fan, so he's going to do this shit justice. I think it's going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope it. I mean, I want it to be good. I've liked a lot of the other projects Eli Roth has done. All right, so speaking of that, you're up. All right. So uh, this is, what, my third pick? Because we're counting the, the, the original Snake was with Breaking 1 and 2, correct? Sure, whatever. <laughs> well, I was going to talk about it, and then you just We're not on. very organized here. So, yeah, we'll, we'll just count the first one as Breaking 1 and 2. All right, well, I'm going to go with King Solomon's Mines. Nice. I I liked this movie when I was a kid. I only oh, had, you're serious? Yeah. No, I only saw it. I was only <laughs> I fortunate. You were kidding. I was o- <laughs> only fortunate enough to see it a few time, a few times. But uh, I did I did like this one. It is it is like the cheesy knockoff of uh, of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know how today you get uh, like. Bloomhouse and there's a few other companies that do like obvious knockoffs of movies on like no budget on like Sharknado budget. Like, well, a, yeah, Asylum. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Asylum movie. This is like the same thing, but done with Raiders of the Lost Ark, except they did it in the 80s. This is the one with Sharon Stone in it? Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. fucking horrible. And they hated yeah, each other. Yeah. yeah. Apparently she sucks to work with, at least at the time. Probably still does. Yeah, I don't know if that changed uh, later in her career or not. But, And then she agreed to do the sequel, which was weird. She had yeah. such a horrible experience on the first one, but wanted to do the sequel. So, You heard the story on how they got Sharon Stone, right, for this movie? Yeah, they, they got yeah. the wrong person. They wanted uh, Kathleen Turner. Yeah, because <laughs> he was watching Romancing the Stone, and uh, Golan was like, I want her. Yeah, I and want it's- her. And that's so funny because right before we started recording, I went over to my VHS stack. I'm like, oh, I'll grab my copy of King Solomon's Mines. I don't have King Solomon's Mine. I have Jewel of the Nile. (laughs) (laughs) Which I totally understand how you confuse the two. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was like a ripoff of that and Indiana Jones just put together. It was. That's exactly what the movie was on a quarter of the budget. I can't so. believe you you picked that one. <laughs> it's funny. I'm actually I'm looking at it right now. I have a VHS copy of it. Oh, I got to get a copy of it. <laughs> All right. So here's one that I think maybe Mike has a copy of. I don't remember if I saw it there. But it's part of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go with the first one in the trilogy. I'm going to go with the last one in the trilogy. And that's Ninja 3. 
the domination. I've always wanted to see this movie because you know my love for Miss Lucinda Dickey. Yes. I've always, and I've never found a copy of it. Oh, you can, this one you could find online. Oh, I'm sure I could. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a Blu-ray out of that one. Is there? Um, yeah, I actually I don't have that one. It's it's on my Amazon wish list. <laughs> um, I don't have any of the ninja movies. When oh, I, think I thought about I saw them Canada. there when I was. No, going man, I, w- I wish I did have them. Um, I don't have any of the American ninjas. I don't have it, the 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 other ninja movies. Well, the the three movies in the trilogy you had: Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and then Ninja Three: The Domination. All three movies, they're the trilogy, but they have nothing to do with one another. They're right. all completely different. This movie, they spent one million bucks on. They brought in seven, another good canon release. It had, like Mark said, had Lucinda Dickey, and this is right before she did Breakin'. And the great part about the story is they just mashed like three fucking movies together. So it's like The Exorcist, uh, Enter the Ninja, and. What would you say the third movie would be like? Like, oh man, I don't know. It's so it's bizarre. three fucking yeah. It's three weird movies put together because basically now you're dealing with a ninja that passes his the Exorcist because he yeah. basically fucking takes her body over and puts the ninja in this this fucking chick. Right, she is who, possessed by the soul of an she, ancient by the ninja. ninja. Yeah. I liked how they said that the only reason that the only re- way an audience would buy a female ninja is if she was possessed, possessed by right. an actual ninja. <laughs> like you, fucking sexist motherfuckers. Man. Yeah. So right. oh, the the other movie that we're missing out on, they took elements of Flashdance. That's what it was. It was Flashdance. Lucinda Dance. Dickey is a fucking aerobics instructor. Yeah. So an aerobics instructor gets possessed by a ninja and it's like how do you not like that no exactly you you describing it that way it's just like oh this is the best thing i've ever heard of i gotta see this well she had two jobs also do you remember what her second job was she was a welder close (laughs) (laughs) that would have been a complete ripoff so instead of that they made her a telephone line woman Oh God! She polished. It's pretty close. She polished doorknobs. <laughs> so she takes over the spirit of this dead ninja, and the entire movie is basically the good ninja trying to get the, uh, the this evil ninja out of her body. D- definitely worth watching. It's now. It's probably like an hour and a half. I would. I would actually. It doesn't matter where you start in that series because they don't connect so start with three and work backwards is anybody going to pick any of the enter the ninjas as we finish this up i've never seen them so no i i don't want to pick them because my experience with them is really limited i honestly the ninja ones i haven't seen since the 90s okay so the only other thing i'll throw out because the second one wasn't really too redeeming they changed it up and the ninja had like that silver mask on uh but the first one is great because it's Franco Nero is playing the fucking the ninja, and this is the guy that played the original Django. Right oh. now he is the fucking ninja. Had no martial arts experience. Signs on for a movie. Golan like says, "Hey, you're gonna be this fucking ninja," and that's where it starts. So watch them all. They're they're great watches. Collect them all, kids. That's right. Spend your money, adults. All right, Mike. 
Um, this next one, I, I wanted I wanted to pick something a little weird, uh, something like a little obscure, and this movie is really similar to the last American version. Uh, it's the same style of hijinks, and the movie's called Hot Chili, and it's from 1985. And this is a one that you really are never gonna come by. Uh, it's really hard to get a VHS of it. You're more likely to find a Betamax. Even then, you're going to be paying, you know, 50 bucks plus for it. Oh, wow. And basically what it is, it's like, it's again, it's three, you know, teenage guys. They, they're, I think they're in like freshmen in high school. It's either, fr- it's, they're either seniors in high school or freshmen in, freshmen in college. <laughs> and they go to a resort okay. for the summer to like, it's in Mexico and they go to this resort and they're going to work there for the summer and like all they want to do is get laid. I mean, there's actually a like a bunch of scenes where like the nerdiest kid in the movie is just he can't he's just like I want to fuck, I want to fuck. It's it's fucking crazy, man. <laughs> and it's severely lower in the budget compared to Last American Virgin. Like the the music is not nearly as good. The story's terrible, but the only people that return you know, to, to this is, um, the fat kid from last American Virgin is in it. And, uh, the woman that plays Carmela is, is in it. She's, and it's not a sequel, but it's basically like a really similar movie. Man, I've never seen that one. Yeah. Yeah, It's, you can watch basically what I had to do, uh, because once I found out who was in it and who made it and how it was kind of really similar, I went out, I found it on YouTube and I watched it for free. Um, That's illegal, Mike Ranger. You know, I'm not the one that put it up there. You are from Uh, Newburgh. Yeah, you know, we we sell Lucy's and shit. Um, But it's definitely like kind of, it's kind of worth a watch because some of the sex scenes are really over the top. (laughs) What, like anal? No, it's just like, it's... (laughs) <laughs> it, it's just like the height of like sex comedy raunch, raunchiness. You know what I mean? Like Bukaki? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, not How quite. weird are we talking? Yeah, you're making me un- uncomfortable there, Mark. You know, it's like I'm in the back of a Volkswagen. <laughs> I'm getting excited. But so it's raunchier I, than Porky's. No, it's yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Porky's isn't necessarily. Yeah, Porky's. I wouldn't say Porky's it. is too raunchy. But like when. You know, and this is something that I talk about with people a lot when especially people that were where their first sex comedy experience really is like American Pie. If you go back and you watch Last American Virgin and you watch Porky's, I knew people that would always be like, oh, American Pie is basically Porky's. But if you watch Last American Virgin, it actually has more in common with that movie. I think Last American Virgin is a lot of fast times. It's like the same class telling a different story in the same school. There's definitely similarities, and I would I would, I would almost like 100% agree with you if Lemon Popsicle didn't come out like 2 or 3 years ago. Oh, earlier. I think it's I mean, the other I think it's the other way around. I think Fast Times pulled from Lemon Popsicle and uh and, and yeah, and just made yeah, a yeah. a well a polished movie. <laughs> right. You know, like Fast Time, Fast Times works on a bunch of different levels. It's more than a sex comedy. It's more than a teen movie. It's it's just it's just classic. Excellent pick. I got to find that one. I like finding the obscure canon films. And I know I think we're pretty much done, but we could throw out 
a couple if you guys have them that we didn't throw out there. Yeah, I got I like think two yeah, or, I got two definitely. or three that I I want to put into a category of movies that I think need to be remade. I could start that and tell me if you agree with this one. Invasion USA. That was my first pick. And I and I actually love Invasion USA. I, I love that he <laughs> fights the entire Soviet army. I haven't seen the second <laughs> half of it. I've gotten through the first half and then life got in the way and I didn't get to finish it and now I don't believe it's on Prime anymore. Can I no. spoil it for you? You go go right ahead. Chuck Norris wins. Oh, damn it. <laughs> damn it. It's all over. But no, I think that needs to be remade. And uh, there was a movie they mentioned in the Electric Boogaloo documentary called Joe that I think yeah. would yeah. be very interesting uh, as a yes. modern remake and very topical. There is a movie similar yeah. to that floating around Netflix now. Um, fuck. Hang on. They named it Fuck Come On. No. While you're looking, you've never heard of it. <laughs> they have no name for it. While you're looking for that, the really fun part about Invasion USA that you don't see anymore in movies is the mall that they destroyed and like that whole uh, housing. It was like a street of houses. They were bulldozing that to extend an airport runway. So Cannon had like car blanche. Or if you've seen 22 Jump Street, they had Kate Blanchett where they could just <laughs> destroy everything. And that's fucking awesome because those were real explosions on real streets, on real property that people have been in. They weren't sets. So that's pretty awesome, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The the explosions and all the pyro stuff and the first half that I saw from Invasion <laughs> USA were all top notch. Well, they didn't have a second neighborhood. No, so there was no other neighborhoods in the second half of the movie that get destroyed? Nah. I, I hear there was a shopping mall, though. Yeah, I, I mentioned that. Okay, well, I must have missed oh, that Oh, you part. didn't see that. Okay. That's the part I missed. <laughs> Sorry, I ruined it. Spoiler. Yeah. I don't think you can, like, if, if you're going to mention, like, Chuck Norris and Cannon, you almost have to mention the missing in action movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they're, I mean, if we're just going to talk about must see canon movies, you know, which, I mean, maybe they're not, which would you say is better missing in action? Obviously this, the, the, well, because of the way they made them is really interesting. Like, you know, they, when they, they did not release them in the order that they shot them. <laughs> right. So I, I guess the second movie that they made, which I, which is just missing in action one, I guess is the better movie. My wife's cousin is in Missing in Action. Nice. He's, ac- he's actually the POW that gets saved. Oh, wow. My father's cousin is in Police Academy 2 in The Blue Oyster. He's one what? of the dancers. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yep. That's a great part. That's <laughs> iconic cinema right there. Yeah, if you go through all the movies, he, he did uh, Missing in Action 1 and 2. I think these are all canon too. He did Firewalker, Delta Force, like I mentioned yep, earlier. Yeah. Uh, Braddock, Missing in Action three. I think they did. Do they do a Delta Force two? Yeah, yeah, they did. Okay, all right, so Delta Force two, and there was one other movie that, or two. Hero, Hero and the Terror is another one that uh, seen that one. Norris did, and there might have been a couple more. He did a lot of movies. He was he did movies for them for like ten years. Yeah, well, they they made him a household name, pretty much. I thought that was done with the octagon. <laughs> and we haven't brought up any of the uh, Emmanuel movies that 
Cannon oh. did either. Yeah. I mean, I know we've that? watched those a ton. Or Bolero. Oh, yeah. Well, I've only watched them for about five minutes. <laughs> five <laughs> minutes at a time. Yeah. The the Happy Hooker movies are pretty interesting. But Hap- Happy Hooker wasn't Globin and Globus, right? That was before they, uh, they bought them? This is the early days. This is yeah. the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, another interesting one is Runaway Train. I don't know if yes. you guys have seen that. That actually, seen but that. that's a really John cool Voight movie. was nominated for an uh, Oscar in that. Yeah, one. for every like shitty movie they did, some there's bright spots, man. But nobody cared about that movie because it was done by Canon. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Once you saw that logo come up on the screen, it's yeah, like, oh. and it makes sense because you wouldn't expect like Asylum to put out a Academy Award winning movie, right? But see, Canon put out such a wide array of movies i mean they had the chuck norris we're gonna blow everything up movies and then they had time period pieces about you know 14th century france i mean which is interesting right there was other ones that people hated well not that they hated but that nobody cared about because it was canon like john frankenheimer did uh 52 pickup uh, i think it was roy scheider was in it yeah vanity's in that right she might be, and they never. Yeah, she is in that, and yeah. that one never did good. Barfly with uh, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, those that was their art house pictures. Barfly looks interesting. I want to see that. Yeah, Faye the- Dunaway looks like shit in that yeah. movie. You know what you don't want to see? New Year's Evil. Yeah, <laughs> 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 oh, no. I I have seen New Year's Evil. Thank you very much, Mister Mike Ranger. Uh, you turned me yeah, on to that one. Yeah, I, that was the one I got through. I didn't get, a, I didn't get a chance to get through all of Invasion of USA, but uh, I did get through New Year's Evil. If there's nothing you could take out of this whole thing, and you don't like canon after all the shit that we just talked about, let me just mm-hmm. leave you with this. There was a movie called Smart Street in 1987, and there was a package deal to get Christopher Reeve to do Superman Four. They had to do a Christopher Reeve pet project. This started the whole downfall because they had to do this Smart Street movie, which they spent like five million bucks on. They didn't make dick off of it. But it was a fairly decent movie. Of course, Superman 4 is a gigantic flop. But what they gave us, and the guy had a career prior to this, but this made his career. Because I think he was actually had an Oscar nomination for a supporting role, I think. And this might have been his first one. Morgan Freeman plays a fucking pimp in Smart Street. I got to see this one. Is that yeah. this is pre Lean on Me? Yes, this is like 87. Okay, wow. So the it, without this you wouldn't have a Lean on Me, which was 89. Right. Yeah, and I can't believe we didn't bring up, you mentioned yeah. Superman. We didn't bring up Superman 4, Quest for yeah, Peace. Yeah, I, I was hoping that we, we I figured we <laughs> cannot leave without mentioning Superman 4. The movie where Superman himself decides that it's a good idea to take away nuclear weapons so smaller countries can't fucking defend themselves. <laughs> yeah, good job, well, But Superman. he was going to defend everybody. Right, but didn't he take them from everybody? Yeah, everybody. Yeah. No he sent them into safe. space and created Nuclear Man. Good job, Superman. Who was a fucking Chippendales dancer? (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever seen the uh, choreographed fight scenes? I think it might be in the Blu-ray. You you can probably find it on YouTube. 
But the uh, choreographed fight scenes between Christopher Reeve and a Chippendales dancer are not good. (laughs) (laughs) In production, they're even worse because it's all in slow. Oh, my God. It's in slow motion and you just want to die. It's bad. Maybe that's why we didn't bring it up until now. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's it's not a good movie. No, yeah. it's it's the worst Superman I've ever seen. Yeah. But you Looking guys terrible. be the judge for yourselves. Check out the documentaries. Uh, there's a couple of them. There's the Go Go Boys and Electric Boogaloo, uh, which you can stream now on Netflix. But you be the judge. Check out these movies if you haven't seen them. You know you're going to be in for a good time. But unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to end this episode. Want to thank our guests for this week. Mike Ranger from the Video Rangers podcast and Brandon from the Red on You podcast. Oh no, I was just thinking, and I'm I'm just to go back for for one quick second. How you you were saying that uh, without that movie, there there would be no Lean on Me, or more, and, and that would just be a shame because we all need someone to lean on. We do. Right, Did you want us to start we'll, singing? Right no, we'll we'll just retire that joke. It sounded way funnier in my head. Uh, we'll keep that in. <laughs> so let us know what you guys think of Canon Films. If you like what we've done here tonight, let us know about it. You know, maybe we'll do more episodes like this. But don't worry. Next week we are going to get right back to some more great dueling decades competition. Now, if you've missed an episode, you can always check us out at DuelingDecades.com. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to our show on CastBox. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes as well. Go over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades. There, you can join our private group, continue the conversation online. Let us know what other topics you'd like us to explore more. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.